out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the drummer and also club organizer, studio organizer. It's the one and only Jackie Bradley, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry. She was in several bands, including Sophisticated Boom Boom and also his latest flame, and also operated the Hellfire Club in Glasgow. And this ran from the early 80s alongside David Henderson. Anyway, this is the interview, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Jackie, it's over to you. Almost, almost mirror image. So I was born in 62, so a wee bit older than you. But yeah, it was David Bowie all the way. Absolutely, that was the very thing. And that idea of that kind of glam and like being able to become whatever you wanted to become set itself in to your psyche. Um, And then punk rock happened and it was everything. Everything was possible. We ran about with a full belief that we could do whatever we wanted, and we did. Yes, and did you grow up in Glasgow at this date? Were you, was that your hometown? Were your parents at all musical or had um, any influence on your sort of direction in life? No, definitely not, no. no. We were brought up in the south side of Glasgow in a housing scheme called Casamilk, which was a real kind of breakout place from the Gorbals in Glasgow. And it was absolutely horrendous insofar as there was it was a dry area, so there were no pubs, no clubs, no gathering spaces whatsoever. So in order to, to kind of gather, you had to come into Glasgow, um, which is what we did. But no, my parents, absolutely not. You know, they were working class people. Mother was a nurse. Dad was a driver. That was it. And nobody, not, not one of my, the members of my family were musical either. So... Yeah, it, it was a funny thing. It was just the people that we met that, that inspired it, you know. Yes. So when you got to sort of the age of 10, 12, I mean, obviously this is the height of the Osmonds, David Cassidy. I, I mean, think. you know, and obviously the Bay City Rollers, I hate to mention it. Did you become a pop fan at all? It was, was yeah, kind of... yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, I was absolutely into David Cassidy. I was definitely into David Essex. And I'm sad to say Tony Osmond as well. Yeah. So all of like when I was at primary school, those were the people that I was kind of listening to. And as you said earlier, then David Bowie entered my consciousness, and you thought, "Oh my lord!" And that that just sort of like like had a massive impact, a massive impact. Yes. And so to this day, if you forced me against the wall and said, "Who was the most influential person in your life? Who do you love the most?" It would that's the name that would come out. And I think a lot of people of our generation would say the same thing. Yes, he was amazing, really. It was kind of strange because it could have been anybody, but for some unknown reason, here in Space Oddity had a quite a profound effect. And then, like I said, you know, in those days, you had to save up something like 70p, you know, like 2p pieces and 1p. And then eventually, you know, I saw it on top of the pops and went, oh, I must get that single for some reason. And um, yeah, and then I heard that B-side, which had, you know, like I said, changes and Velvet Goldmine. I thought... Wow, B-sides are amazing. Uh-huh. I slightly peaked at that stage. And then my first album was Changes One Bowie. And again, those those songs were so interesting and curious. But I've all, you know, I also, you know, there was pop music in the charts, top of the pops, yeah. the, 
the charts on a Sunday evening on the radio and stuff like that was was quite amazing. So you were a little bit older. Did you? So did you leave school at the age that would have been nineteen um, sixteen? Did you leave school at sixteen, or did you stay on for A levels? I left school early. So yeah, I mean, like when I was working in the record shop, I would be about sixteen. So yeah, that was like kind of like just at the end of the seventies, and yeah, left school, went, got a job in a record shop in Duke Street in Glasgow, and met and through the record shop met like David and the Simple Minds and Bruce and all that, and that was brilliant because that kind of opened up this kind of world of music that was there physically there in my life, you know. Whereas before, as you were saying, we've got to on top of the pops and whatever. And that then started as kind of going into Glasgow and going to see bands live and going to the Mars Bar where, like, amazing things were happening, the most grungy, punky things were happening. And at that stage, you know, like, I was about 15 or 16, and Lord God, we walked into Glasgow and got into these gigs at that age, and it just blew your mind. Really yes. blew your it did, definitely. <laughs> so, what was the record shop you went uh, worked in? Was what was your first job? Did you say? Called Lucy's Records. And was so, that a kind of a particular scene? Was that because there weren't a lot of independent? I mean, Norwich had ones called Robin's Records, and then I think Andy's Records. But Robin's people still to this day sort of reminisce about it with great enthusiasm yeah. because it was all it was all sort of vinyl, wasn't it? And then people were in listening booths, and obviously at that stage, though you mentioned punk. A lot of people were very much influenced by prog rock and serious music. So did you cater for all sorts of music in this shop or was it quite an elitist little place? No, no, it, it catered for everybody. So there was a Brucey's in, in Duke Street where I worked and another one in, in Edinburgh. And those two shops kind of, you know, were owned by the same people. But they absolutely catered for everybody. So they would have like, all the kind of pop stuff the prog rock stuff and then the emerging punk thing. But you know, you know what record shops are like, they're, they're interesting places and gathering spots for people to come and, and group up and hang about outside and what have you. And actually, like in Glasgow, the people who did that the most were punks and that had already started happening at that time. And uh, yeah, it was a, it's a funny thing. It's really funny actually, David, because in the Museum of Transport in Glasgow here, there's a little pop-up, you know how they've got this like kind of old-fashioned street there where they put all these old shops and one of those shops is a, a, an old-fashioned record shop and in the record shop they've got all this vinyl stuff and one of the records is our record and they got a, a, a group of people to come and talk about working in record shops, so I did that and the first time I saw it was just like last week or a couple of weeks ago. And I went in and there we were like in the record shop. And it looked like a record shop with all the vinyl up. And, and I'm talking about working in the record shop. And it was quite a sort of like surreal moment because you just suddenly think, I'm actually a relic in a museum looking at yes. antiques. I can, <laughs> see, I can see the photograph <laughs> on your Facebook page. Yes. That's that's the one, yeah. That's the one. Yeah, some people would go in and smoke as well, didn't they? They had also yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It all went down. <laughs> it all went down. So what was your first gig you went to? Uh, it was in the Mars bars, and it was probably, I think I've mentioned Simple Minds 20 times by now. <laughs> <laughs> it 
really was simple minds in the Mars bar uh, in Glasgow. Tiny, tiny little bar and t- totally blew your blew your head off. Absolutely. And then lots of other bands like so at that point like things started to emerge like a lot more kind of electronic things in the wake of woe and what have you, people started the craft work thing. So bands were replicating that sort of like minimalist thing. The Berlin Blondes, have you ever heard of them? Was it, did you say Berlin Blondes? Berlin Blondes. Oh, Berlin Blondes. Gosh, sorry about that. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, Berlin Blondes. No, I don't actually, but um, now I'm going to have to scribble that down and, and link. What about well, bands? I mean, I know this always sounds a bit much, but, you know, I remember the skids being on top of the pops and being absolutely blown away by that kind of energy as well. Did you have a, a certain loyalty to Scottish bands? Was that, Did you have that feeling of being a particularly, yes, not biased, but, you know, what being proud of the, you know, the bands that you saw on top of the pops? Well, yeah, I mean, it is inevitable because, you know, you're sort of mixing with these people because it's quite a small scene. Um, but a funny, interesting story about the Skids is that when we had the Hellfire Club and Sophisticated Boom Boom started to experiment and record in there, it was Richard Jobson. He was there one night when we were doing a few run-throughs and recording it. And he said, that's really good. I'm going to see John Peel, like, in a few days. Will I take it and let him hear it? And we said, well, that would be good. <laughs> so <laughs> he duly did. And he took it and he played it to John Peel. John Peel, like, you know, loved it and had his own for three Peel sessions. So, and that... I swear to you, David, at that point, we had been together as a band for about two weeks. Right. (laughs) That's excellent, isn't it? I mean, you must have thought, well, this is such an easy gig. I mean, you just have to literally be in the same room as a few other people and John Peel will put you on, you know, national radio. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so, like, you know, you've got these connections with people. And then when they turn up on top of the box, you're just like, oh my god, that's that's fantastic. It's yes. So-, so when did you were you were you still still in the record shop? And then what what made you want to be in a band? I mean, apart from you know the fantasy of either being a, in my case, a football player or a musician. So what was it? Because you you went for the drums, didn't you? When did the musical instrument enter your life? Yeah. So like I was in the record shop, met. David started the Hellfire, left the record shop to go and start the Hellfire Club, started to record people who who went on to become quite successful, you know, like Orange Juice and Aztec Camera and all of these kind of people. So we were we were there with with a setup and uh, it was honestly like one night we decided, me and a group of friends that became sophisticated boom and thought, oh come on, we'll have a wee shot of the equipment. And the only thing, I'd never touched a drum kit before in my life. And the only thing, this sounds horribly pretentious, but it's true. The only thing that made me sit behind the drums was the fact that I had been reading Gunter Grass's novel, The Tin Drum. And I loved wee Oscar. And I thought, oh, I want to be Oscar. So I sat behind the drums. <laughs> and I'd never heard drums before, so, but I was in good company, so it was okay. So that was with your your is it um, the four of was it the four of you at that point or five yeah. of you? It was so they, four at that point and then we got somebody else in. Yeah. Yeah. So that was me. So you'd left the the record shop 
started the so yeah so what was I mean that's quite a big thing because you were still in your teens weren't you to start a studio and was it just the studio was it a live venue where you were trying to organize as well yeah no it was rehearsals to begin with and then we sort of we literally built walls and soundproofed them and put the recording equipment in and started the recording so it was rehearsals and recording but never a venue well, you know, th- th- there was lots of parties and things and lots of people would come and people would be playing away, but it wasn't an actual venue at any point, you know. That's been good. <laughs> yes. So David David Henderson, he was he was part of this Simple Minds kind of crew at this stage. Yeah, so- well, he, well, I mean, it ended with Simple Minds and that was when he said, you know, this is what I want to do. And they, they helped him. To, to set it up, they gave them the equipment and the recording stuff. So yes, because a lot that, of people at that, a lot of people in the eighties. I mean, you know, through unemployment, there was a lot of sort of people, you know, signing on and job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance schemes. But you didn't have to do that route. You could just kind of set it up as more of a, a almost a proper business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it literally was that because, like, it cost very little to to hire the place because it was it was derelict but we did actually have to be something and uh, we got the equipment like donated mostly or your family helped whatever and then we just started to make money and you know we were just like kind of taking in two pound for the rehearsal and yeah we just sort of built it up from there and then like you know as you were saying like so in the midst of that sophisticated boom boom emerged you know so we then started to we did that recording we did the John Peel stuff then we started to get support gigs with other bands that were around at that time and then that kind of like took off at the same time yes so what were the first bands that came and and sort of uh used the the rehearsal space or recording um yeah so yeah I mean one's Ones that you would know would be Orange Juice, Aztec Camera, The Bluebells, um, yeah. That's pre- that is pretty amazing, though. That Alter- is quite... Yeah, Alter Images early days, like that was it. You know, they came in and... Do you remember, uh, well, have you heard of a band called The Dream Boys? The Dream Boys. Oh, God, who was in The Dream Boys? So in The Dream Boys, the singer was Peter Capaldi, who is an actor... Yep, I've got Peter Capaldi, yes. And they don't. Uh-huh. I can't remember because I've done quite a few interviews and I just wonder if I've interviewed a, interviewed a member of the Dream Boys, actually, because I've come across this Peter Capaldi thing before, so, actually. He became Doctor Who. Yes. So, yes, Peter Capaldi, no yeah. problem. But I just um, wondered who was their guitarist, actually. This is what I'm fiddling oh, around. So the guitarist is a guy called Roddy Murray. Roddy who, Murray. Is like he actually work has a an art gallery up in um, Stornoway, so he's up there now. Um, yeah, so he's he was a guitar player. The drummer was Craig Ferguson. Yeah, oh. you know him. Uh, and the bass player was a guy called Temple Clark, who ended up doing animation and and movies. 
Thanks no, so I'll have to confess, I have not come across the Dream Boys, but there, there's been quite a lot of different bands <laughs> who I have come across. And I keep thinking, oh, because I can't remember now, but there was somebody recently who's just bought out a single who was in a band in Scotland from the 80s, appeared on top of the pops and did other really? things and has, has come back recently. But obviously, yes, it's, that does that doesn't make a conversation, really, does it? <laughs> but yeah, suddenly find themselves. I mean, it was quite interesting because a lot of those bands probably can't work out how it happened, but, you know, just got together, you know, just, you know, poor little kids, working class, played a few instruments and suddenly... John Peel session, Top of the Pops, you know, yeah. suddenly touring the country and thinking, how did that happen? And not having any appreciation that actually this was quite a special. And then suddenly it starts ping and it all, it all. Fell. Yeah. So did you come across just as my kind of brain? So did you come across people like Alan Horn at this stage? Yeah. The oh, yeah. So like when, when we had the Hill, in fact, before we had the Hill Fire Club, I was friends with Alan and Edwin and myself and the singer and sophisticated boom boom Libby MacArthur. Her brother was a photographer, Peter, and he would was really good friends with Alan and um, Edwin. So we 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 all kind of hung about, and then like Orange just kind of were just starting. So when we started the Hellfire Club, that was the first time we really recorded anything, and they recorded it in the Hellfire Club. Wow, so, and what and what was Alan Horn like? Because he was a young chap then, wasn't he? And he's he's got this kind of you know mystical quality to him because he's sort of disappeared. What was he like as a young person in the eight only forty years ago? So, like, I did this like talk thing recently for the Hungry Beat. I don't know if you've read the Hungry Beat, uh, a kind of book about um, Scottish indie pop and. Uh, at that time and there was a panel of us like kind of having a chat about it and I don't know it kind of got a bit of bad press really you know because people were quite like you know it was horrible if if he didn't like want you to be part of his group he was quite kind of you know dismissive of you or whatever but I I never really like found that with him I found him to be quite a sort of like interesting guy he was a very curious guy um, and all the stories about how he could be a wee bit mean and all that passed me by, if I'm honest, you know. Um, but actually, somebody said to me, why then did Postcard Records not sign Sophisticated Boom Boom? And I thought, well, actually, that's that's interesting because it was never even a conversation or a possibility. It didn't really enter our heads as a band that we should sign the Postcard and it clearly never entered Alan's horn, Alan Horn's mind that he should sign us. So it was, it just, it just didn't happen. I mean, they did sign a work with Strawberry Switchblade, who were around at the same time. My God, my God, that was amazing, Strawberry Switchblade. And was um, 53rd and 3rd Records, was that Edinburgh? Uh, I think so, because it was right. in Glasgow, yeah. yeah. So that's, was, that's the Pastels, uh, isn't it? The Pastels are from Edinburgh? No, the Pastels are Glasgow, and like uh, Stephen Pastel still has a record shop in Glasgow called Mono. Right. Yes, I know. That yeah. that's that's just been a disaster saying that, and I should. <laughs> I won't bother edit it out, but that's you know, I should get these things right, shouldn't I, before I talk? So it's fine. Don't worry. The hate comments, I can feel them already. Um, oh. I can cope, though. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And what about, I mean, there are a lot of people, obviously, at the time, you know, I know I'm probably vaguely banging on about it, but, you know, you you know, 
young young teens just doing their things and but you know there's also alan mcgee who then does creation records and then obviously has this incredible period doing the 80s and is pretty good in the 90s but by then you know whatever but yes the i I mean this is this is (laughs) who cares that's just details but yeah i mean was alan about that you know at that time yeah yeah i mean like from the time i walked into Glasgow from Castle Milk, Alan and Edwin were among one of the, the first kind of twosomes that we met, and it was all part of this punk scene. There was a, a kind of better, trendier record shop in Glasgow called Graffiti, and outside Graffiti, the really cool people would be, and they would be among them, and they, they would all be the talk about what they could do, and they, they thought they were all in the Velvet Underground and all that, and and, and it was it was super exciting. I mean, like the summer of '76 here in, in in the UK was really memorable, and that was that was one of them, wasn't it? When it was meltingly hot, every, everybody was milling around outside record shops, and and it was the start of something really fantastic. Yes. I was a wee bit too young for that, but you know, I was kind of on the fringes of it. Yeah. I was, I was, yeah, I was just too young for punk, really. But um, yeah, and also I came from sort of the East Anglian countryside, where, to be honest, punk didn't didn't reach those areas for another ten years, probably, if at all. Yeah. I mean, it was it was status quo and heavy metal, really, during oh. those periods. So um, it's yeah. fine. One one lives with these kind of things. It's it's all good. <laughs> but then, I mean, I was did an interview with somebody yesterday who was a writer, and he said that he went from being, you know, like wearing green cords to almost suddenly cutting his hair, getting skinny jeans. Almost overnight, he realised that if he was going to become a writer for sounds covering punk bands, he couldn't walk around in green co- flared cords. He, I don't know. That, I don't think Sid Vicious would have given you much of a... He would have beaten you up. <laughs> so when you got your band together, which is kind of... You're really multitasking here. Did you... Did it all just click into place quite quickly? Did your youthful enthusiasm and sort of carefree attitude just come oozing through the speakers? Absolutely, and and you know, and it's no flippant to say that the the punk ethos was really important in in that sort of dynamic because without that, we would never have dared. You know, like it sort of something just opened up, and so and because I mean, you know, it sounds a bit kind of ridiculous. But given the fact that we were in a recording studio with all the equipment set up and we, we had spent a number of nights just, you know, hanging about and having a good time and we just said, and like Trisha said, I know a few chords to, you know, uh, the undertones, teenage kicks. Like, she's like, I know that. I know the chords to that. And Libby said, well, I can sing. And so, and we just went and just had a laugh. And... But as you said, something just kind of clicked and it just, and apart from anything else, it was really good fun. So we thought, this is brilliant. Why do we keep watching other people doing this when we could just do it? And of course, the fact that we were all girls, it was a happen chance. You know, it just happened. We didn't engineer it that way. We weren't kind of politically motivated by the fact that we were all female we were just friends in the same way that boy bands get together because they're just friends. It was exactly just the same. Yeah. But, you know, we, we just thought, well, let's just do that. And then 
we, we needed a bass player, so we got Laura in, who was the girlfriend of one of the guys in Dream Boys. So that made sense because he was a bass player, so clearly she would be able to play the bass because he could play the bass. And that, <laughs> yeah, the, that it ran so, in the family, yes. And I mean, <laughs> you know, Paul Simeon from The Clash, I mean, you know, he got he got good at it, but you know, he wasn't the most gifted to begin with. God, that's such a controversial thing to say. But anyway, it was punk, no, no, it was good. But look, sort of, you know, as we trundled into the 80s, obviously, you know, Thatcher gets in in 79, the Falkland War, Miners Strike, then Green and Common. We're all going to get nuked, aren't we, at this stage? But obviously, you know, so what was, you know, was Glasgow, what was it economically like at this stage? Was it, or were you just too young having fun to be that bothered? No, we were bothered, and it was actually like you know, like you're talking about the miners' strike, and at that time we actually had kind of morphed into his latest flame. We signed with Go Discs Records, who also had Billy Bragg and the House Martins. So we went and did a a tour with House Martins, and Billy Bragg was there during the miners' strike. So. A lot of the gigs that we played with them were in support of the miners. So we, but that was up and down the country. It wasn't just particularly in Scotland. So yeah, well, we were, we were aware of that and we were motivated by that. And yeah, a lot of people we knew had families that came from mining families. And yeah, Absolutely. And did you, um, at that stage, I mean, obviously the House Martins were one of those, you know, incredible bands. They, their, you know, debut album was brilliant. What was it like getting on tour and sort of going around the country? Did you did you kind of excel at the enthusiasm of sort of seeing different parts of the UK? A bit like a Bill Bryson book, Notes from a Small <laughs> Island, or something like that. <laughs> like that, yeah. We, we had we had such fun. I mean, it was fantastic. You know, we literally like were in the back of vans. Sometimes we had a wee minibus right enough, which was quite comfortable. And up and down we ran with them, and they they were brilliant company. They were really good good people. They told us they were vegetarians, but all they ate was chips, so they were not that healthy. But they were absolutely, you know, it was it was great and. You know, coming from Glasgow and all of a sudden we're, we're with this band that are kind of, you know, not Scottish, not one of these people that had come through the Hellfire Club that we had known for whatever length of time and living a different kind of existence and meeting really, really interesting people. Yes. And what was it like? And what was it like having people coming up and being excited by the band? Was that quite a strange experience? Of course, yeah, and 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 brilliant. You know, I mean, really, really great. And you know, when we were supporting them, they were really encouraging of us and gave us lots of time. And and their audience was really kind to us. So you know, that that was that was brilliant. And I remember when uh, House Martins, what was their first big hit? Well, I remember Happy Hour was particularly, which was just such a a youthful student classic, wasn't it? Up there with the Waterboys and the Smiths, really. And that kind of happened while we were on tour. And they suddenly started, it was really lovely, because they suddenly started doing interviews and wearing his latest flame t-shirts, you know, which was like our bands. So they would would wear our t-shirts and go and do their interviews. Uh, which was lovely of them. I mean, I always liked them. 
really kind of them. <laughs> yes. So with John, with the John Peel sessions, you did three, didn't you? Which were amazing. So the first one was like eighty-one. Can you remember who produced it? Was it Del Griffiths at this stage, or yeah, was? And you know, I'm really sorry, but like, like. That man really annoyed me. It was really funny because, like, we were we were super duper excited. We were away down to London, and we were absolutely hopeless in terms of our technical ability. But we were full of that youthful enthusiasm, and we had songs that we thought were really interesting. Clearly, John Peel did as well. But oh my goodness, man! That he, I found him a really terrible person to work with. Yes, most people did. No one yeah. had a nice. <laughs> Is that, oh, that's good. That's good. I'm kind of relieved by that because, like, when I think about him, I just think, why do you have to be like that? You know, it was just difficult, but we got through it and we did three. So yeah, it was it was brilliant. It was yes. Brilliant. So you did White Horses. It's all about mm-hmm. sex. Surrender to me yeah. and Joe. So were these yeah. songs that you've been rehearsing and playing live for for a few months? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I said, like that happened really quickly. We with Jobs and taking the thing down to John Peel and John Waters and then them saying, right, okay. So in in that sort of like when we first walked into that recording room to that point was a very short distance. So those were the songs that we had. And we tried White Horses. We thought that was quite funny. And the other songs we, we got together. So it, it was it was kind of it was quite a bizarre thing to happen, and obviously, you know, like when you look back on it and you tell people, like we were honestly, you're talking about like two weeks or you know whatever. They, I don't know if they believe us, but it was really true. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of bands, you know, when I often sometimes talk to them about it, they often say, "I kind of wish we'd enjoyed it more at the time." We we were just in this kind of you know intense frenzy as a band as this group of people it was all a little bit intense and a lot of anxiety and and then you know it's over and and then you think oh god I wish we just didn't had relaxed a bit and just kind of gone god we're so lucky this is brilliant isn't it but at the time you know when you're in your teens it's um you know you don't always have that kind of insight or you know ability or wisdom or whatever so anyway so yeah. you did you did two more sessions with peel at this stage <laughs> so were you run you were doing the band and the you know the club at um the studio at the same time these were I, running parallel yeah yeah that's exactly right and then like ultimately like what happened was the the hellfire club kind of ended and the band kept going so there was sophisticated boom boom who did the peel sessions then it changed into his late slim we got a different singer in and it became his late slim and we did a whole bunch of other things and at that point not long after that the hellfire club ended and we were just busy doing doing the band yeah yes god that is quite so why did the club finish to be honest, it finished because we had sort of moved premises into this, like, we ended up underneath Savannah. I remember I said earlier that there was a kind of posh recording studio in Glasgow called Savannah. And when we started within the tenement and then we moved, they knocked that tenement down. So we ended up in the basement of Savannah and we built the Hellfire Club. And that was the one that Jules Holland had come to. Yes. Um, but what happened there was the guy that owned the, the uh, Savar decided he wanted to kind of change things around and, and refurbish it and use the space that we were in. 
So we thought, right, okay, well, that's that, that's a time to kind of end anyway because the band were busier and we were going away and doing things. And we just, and David, the, you know, with the Hellfire Club, he was kind of managing us and tour managing us. So we all just kind of left that behind and went on. Yes. And, and why did you change the name of the band? Why did it become his latest flame? Because Libby, who was the singer in Sophisticated Boom Boom, she had a son. And so um, unceremoniously, we thought, well, we can't have a singer who's pregnant with a baby. So we just have to move on from that. And and we did. And we got another singer in. And so we did. We couldn't really in all conscience take the name Sophisticated Boom Boom, which is very much Libby. And yes. Us, and continue that with a different singer. So we ha- it had to change. So it changed at that point. Yes, absolutely. And then sort of the 80s. I mean, this is the kind of golden years of indie pop, wasn't it? 83 to 87, The Smiths, which obviously at the time were massive. You had bands like, you know, Lloyd Cole and The Commotions. And then this kind of whole wave of other people like The June Brides, Yeah, Yeah, No. I won't go through them. The Mighty Lemon Drops, Primitives, The, the Darling Buds. Did you, were you quite sort of, at that stage, was the band a really serious proposition for the members? You know, was it the thing that you thought was going to be almost like a career? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, like you were saying earlier, like people would like look back in their time and think, you know, we should just have enjoyed it. We should just have kind of made the most of it. It was a, it was a, you know, privilege to be in that situation. And when you look back at that point in that 80s, you know, when like the record companies were coming up to Glasgow, they were courting all the bands because they, they knew there was a scene happening there. And what happened was that sort of punk rock, we are just having fun, we can do what we want because we feel like doing it, sort of morphed into that, like you're describing. Um, we could have a career here. We could be a contender. We could actually be pop stars. Let's, let's court that idea. And and I think when that happens, then it becomes a sort of different thing. And when record companies get involved, it definitely becomes a different thing, particularly at that time. And yeah, I think that's what happened. I mean, you know, like I can't help but more fondly speak about the, the sophisticated boom boom time because it was much more kind of raw and honest, and naive and. And we didn't even know what it was we, we were chasing. We were just doing it because we wanted to. And we, we thought we were good enough at it. But the minute we get into that big, shiny London world of record companies and producers and, and you know, and like this scene and getting on top of the pops, you, you start to kind of compromise and it becomes a different thing. And yes. I would say... So did did you get the did you get you know go for go discs? Was that quite a an easy decision to sort of sign for them? Oh yeah, that yeah that that was great. So we signed we signed to go discs, and then we signed to London Records. So like yeah, we did the sync with go discs, and then we went to London. And it was when we went to London Records that. They, they all started to kind of get involved, you know, and we went off to the good studios and, you know, uh, Michael, uh, excuse me, Martin Rushant studio, we went there and, like, all of a sudden people were coming in and saying, no, you really don't want, you want to get a session drummer in there or you want to get a session bass player in because that would sound much better. And that, and that was when we were recording the album. And at that point, I just thought, 
no, this is becoming too shiny. And we we were never shiny, and we never should have been because we were just people kind of trying to make a noise that reflected who we were. Yes, my God, that's so that's so much tension. But I've also come across quite a lot of drummers who've had horrendous experience in the studios with people. The producer need wanting a click track. They go, "We need the click track," and the you know the drummer's like, "I'm not quite sure if I can do the click track." And it's like, yeah. "Okay, well, let's get yeah, like you said, let's get someone who can drum." And it's like, "Well, then what is the band if I'm, the musicians aren't playing it? It, it becomes really difficult." So yeah. uh, yes, it's quite a nightmare, isn't it? Really, yeah. I mean at this stage so was David still your manager at, at this yeah, point he, he was with the band all the way right through all the way right through and it, it's funny because like sorry I just remembered like when you were talking about that that when we were on go this we did our single with Nick Lowe you know and he produced it and he was so different from all of those people he he spent hours and hours and hours with the bass and drums going We'll do it again. We'll do it again. We'll get it right. Well, absolutely. This is your sound. This is your band. We're not going to do all that. And that babied in us a, a, a much better record, you know. And then we went to the other thing. So, yeah, we all went together. David came along and it was all the way right through till its demise. David was there. Yes, God. So who was the producer for the, was that your first single on Godis, Stop the Tide? Yeah. Was that the one you were talking about? I And somebody's going to get a heart, yeah. Right, yeah. there you go. So was that kind of fun times for the band? Was that one of the... That was the best, I would say, yeah. That that really was a, a, a brilliant experience. There was nothing wrong with that. You know, you look back on it and you think, my God, that was so fun. It was really exciting. And we sounded the way we wanted to sound. But, yeah, after that, it it, it, it just didn't, yeah. And that was Nick Lowe on, on the on the single with Someone's Going to Get Hurt. So did yeah. you say that was, that was also a positive experience as well? Yeah, that was perfect. Absolutely perfect. But the album, so, but, so Stop the Tides and Somebody's Going to Get Hurt were great. And then the album was a much more difficult kind of birth and more yeah, politically fraught, I would suggest. <laughs> it's, quite, <laughs> it's quite a tricky time for a lot of bands, especially if you've been going for quite a few years, because the other thing that happens is that there's a kind of a change in the musical landscape, you know, that you, you don't realise at the time. But then looking back, you go, oh, yes, that was a period where... You know, that was the sound, that was the producer, that was the scene. And then another wave of 16, 18-year-olds come along and they go, no, we want this band. You know, so prog yeah. rock fans had to deal with punk and then punk had to do with, you know, new wave and then indie pop, you know. And it's always yeah. interesting when you hear people like Joe Strummer saying in an interview, well, there's just no good music. And I mean, Joe, that's a really amazing statement. You still, you hadn't, you, this was 82, you know, you still, there's all these bands in the 80s. You've just said, nope, that's it. I've just decided. Music, right. It's almost like music. I think, God, you old fart. You know, you, <laughs> you know, that's amazing. So we do become old quite quickly. And unless you kind of go, yeah, to be honest, I just don't get it. So I'm just not going to say that embarrassing thing. Like, there's just no good music. The kids, you know, it's like, Jesus. So, yes, so music just changed. And then you had that world of, you know, like 687, the Smiths breakup. You have ecstasy, the dance scene, then you have the grunge scene. All things are changing. So for you as a musician in a band, how are you thinking, oh, what do we, what do we need to sound like? Well, 
So by the time we get to like eight, right, late eighties, eighty. In fact, here here's a punctuation point. So nineteen eighty nine, I had my daughter, and Laura the bass player had her son. So at that point, his latest flame changed. It, it became something completely different again. So we were we were away and. The band lasted, I think, maybe until 1990, and then it was over. It was gone. So by that time that you're describing, we were already kind of, you know, on the... It's not going to happen. Things have changed, haven't they? Yeah, I guess by then, yeah, I'm basically doing the maths in my brain, aren't I? You've sort of got that age where you're just thinking, yeah, we've been around 20... Yeah, you're in your late 20s then, aren't you? It's kind of... yeah. I mean that you you know you're looking at kind of 26, 27, and and we had been around for a long time because we were really young when we started. So yeah, and God, I mean how amazing is that? I mean you know we spent like most of our like you know our late very late teens and most of our twenties running around doing yes. tours and things that were really brilliant but that's so, that's but that's the light you know but you spent that time in rock and roll which is probably the greatest education ever <laughs> absolutely <laughs> that's so good i mean everyone should have it that's a great degree isn't it rock and roll yes so then the 90s come families babies and and then so does the band do you sit down and have that moment together saying that's it to quote jim morrison this is the end this is the end yeah by that time, I was away anyway because I was away, like, uh, being busy. And the band had, like, you know, we we had a sort of follow-up um, stuff to do. I then ended up getting replaced by a male drummer and off we went. We sort of fell out for a wee while over that. But interestingly, we're all good friends now and we're still really good friends and we spend a lot of time together so it, it's kind of worked out well um, I think 1990 was a good time for it to end because that was like the 80s you know and we were very much of that sort of period yes and I know I agree you just didn't want to go into the John Major years did you really to, <laughs> to just keep it keep it on one prime minister I know, such a fine lady. Um, yeah. So then, with with that, do you does does music or any other creative form come come into you? I I have no idea what happens next. Actually, do you? No. Do you... So we. It's interesting because like all none of us like, and it's a kind of telling thing. I think none of us have have continued in music. Absolutely not one member of the band. Everybody I man went off to university and did their did their grown-up thing, got degrees and, and had things. So, yeah, that's what I did. I ended up being a teacher of English. So, yeah, and now I'm retired from that. Fantastic. Well <laughs> done, yes. It's actually a lot of indie bands, you know, go, actually, I need to go back to university. Oh, I'll become teacher training. I'll become an, you know, I'll become a teacher. And and occasionally, you know, strum a guitar or play the odd musical moment. But yeah, I mean, that's a very well, well sort of trodden path, actually. There, there you go. And then, yeah. and, and so, do you are you still sort of interested or active in in the sort of cultural scene that you help develop? Do you know? It's it's funny in Glasgow. Have you heard of last night from Glasgow? 
the record company. Have you heard of them? Is that, no. God, I might have done. They the soup, I was going to say, are the Soup Dragons on that label? Probably. Probably. So, like, the reason I bring it up is because in March, there's to be a re-releasing of his latest Flames album. And exactly at the same time, there's a documentary being released called Since Yesterday about uh, pioneers in women's and Scottish pop music. And it's us and uh, Strawberry Switchblade and a few other people are kind of coming into it. So at March time, we're re-releasing the album and they're talking about releasing the sophisticated Boom Boom John Peel sessions as an album as well. And the documentary's all coming out. So back to your question, we've suddenly become like re-immersed in the world, you know, it's, it's all in a kind of retrospective way. Yes. Well, actually, I think it's interesting when I started doing, you know, this 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 show and doing these indie bands, there wasn't it hadn't really been a thing. And then, you know, it was like quite curious. And then I noticed in the last five years, this amazing amount of books have come out, films. Mm -hmm. There's been, you know, people managed to get, you know, like documentaries together. Um, reissues are coming out, people have started to reform, you know, so it was the Soup Dragons who I spoke to the other night, they've got their early singles released on that particular label last night from Glasgow and, they, and they've decided to reform do two new songs and they're going to be doing a tour at the end of October as well as um, yeah, suddenly it's like, gosh we, we did have no idea this was going to happen but they've got the BMX bandits playing with them uh, the Vaseline yeah. and Stephen Pastel is going to be DJing in Glasgow very yeah. soon. And again, you think, well, that's a Scottish love fest of indie pop from the 80s. What a, <laughs> what, what, not to like, you know, people are going to come from all over the country, if not the world, to see this because no one thought that the Soup Dragons would appear again. Even they didn't. So, you know. Well, they'll have gone off and done the family thing and they're back, yeah. Yes, this is true. So it's brilliant that that, that they've, they've picked up on you. And it's also quite interesting because obviously in this day and age, people have thought there was a book recently that came out, The Women of, the Women of Factory Records. And it's like, yeah, the story of Factory Records has always been, you know, we know it painfully don't we you know the main characters but they're all men and it's like but what about all the women who were part of that and it's like oh yes damn yes we've we've, we've got that part of the story so I think a lot of people have thought can we just a look at more interesting bits of the 80s but also can we sort of you know balance it up somewhat because it is a bit embarrassing so it's fantastic that um you're gonna you're gonna get lots of interest and um new new sort of enthusiasm for your music so is it I know I'm waffling here, but is it available on either Download, Bandcamp, Spotify, your bands? I think so. I mean, I think you can get, certainly um, His Latest Flame, definitely on Spotify. I don't know if, if the whole album thing is on, but yeah, you can get that on Spotify. Um, Sophisticated Boom Boom, probably not, because... We were never signed. We only did the Peel sessions. That was a, and uh, like all the record companies when they came up when we were his late flame said, but we all thought sophisticated boom boom were already signed, and so consequently we actually never released a record until now. If we can get this together, that will be the first time it's been released on vinyl. Oh, so, brilliant! So they're gonna they've because uh, so they're gonna get your. 
three sessions, probably about 12 tracks, and try and release. Mm -hmm. Oh, that is brilliant news. I'm so pleased because there's another chap called Nick who's got this label called The Precious Recordings of London, and he's been bringing out sessions from John Peel, Janice Long, possibly Kid Jensen. I might be making that up now. But they're, you know, like (laughs) bands like the BMX Bandits and the Orchids. And obviously, Biss and um, the Soup Dragons have got all those. So that's great that um, people are. I love the archiving of life. People are just digging down, aren't they, for the love of it? You know, because somebody somewhere is going to want to buy one of the probably 300 that are going to be pressed up. So I think it's brilliant. So there yeah. you go. Yeah, we'll see what happens. But it's interesting. It's funny how it just kind of comes back because you do leave it behind, don't you? It's sort of like, well, that was that. Yes. But yeah. Yeah, but more than happy. <laughs> and, with, and during lockdown, which is an interesting time of our life, did you also start sort of looking at some of your archives and memorabilia and thinking, God, we, we need to sort of try and preserve some of this, either on a book, website, you know, exhibition? Has has any of that crossed your minds about all no, the... No, like I have to say, I am, like other members of the band are better at it, but I'm really, really bad at it. I, I've got, I keep nothing. Like I'm, I get rid of things. I, I recently had a look to see if I actually had a, a vinyl copy of our own record album, and I don't. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't even know where that went. But fortunately, they're just about to bring it back out. So but that that would that would save you having to hunt around in the attic, won't it? Really. And yeah, do I, any of you uh, do any of the members? You said you didn't. Any of you continue in music? Have you kept your musical instruments, or did you sort of get rid of those as well? They mostly went. Certainly for me, because you know, being a drummer isn't a particularly portable thing. Although I have I have played drums on like several occasions since then till now and enjoy it. Um, but I don't I never actually kept a drum kit that I brought with me through. But yeah, I think a couple of them have still got their guitars and, and what have you. Um but they don't they use them sometimes but not very often. We had a we actually had a sophisticated boom boom reunion when we were all 50. So we were all 50 around about the same time. And we, we did a wee gig and played specifically Boom Boom songs. It was really good fun. <laughs> I would imagine it was brilliant. Oh, that's so good news, actually. Yes, this is. And then, yes, and obviously people have got these archives of you only 40 years ago on the tube. That must be really amazing to see yourselves, you know, on that bit of footage. Was that with Muriel Gray and then Claire Claire as well from Alter the Image? Claire, yeah, Claire was there in the Hellfire Club. And Jules came, it was just Jules that came actually. He he came to us and uh, yeah, breathed the Hellfire Club. And uh, yeah, that, that was it. It was just us. And we played in one of the rehearsal studios there and we just filmed it. Amazing. That is so good. <laughs> yes. Well, look, and if you could have whispered something to your like 16 year old self stars now, is there anything that you would have gone, God, that would have been such a good idea? <laughs> I would have whispered to my 16-year-old self, hold on to what you really believe is true. And how many people would say that, that you've interviewed? You know, don't don't get sidelined by other people's ideas. Hold on to your own, you know. Yes. Absolutely go for it. Because, you know, what you've got to say is just as valid as anybody else. And if you've got a, a, a means to communicate that, then that's valuable. 
Did you did you find it funny watching yourself, you know, on that that little TV clip, how confident you both were and so sort of self-assured? It's funny because I thought I looked like like terrified, like just absolutely like, oh my god, don't even look at me. Don't you dare. <laughs> if I could go back and do that interview again, I think it would be a better thing. I just think it's brilliant that A, there was such a program and B, you know, they've been slightly archived on the on the YouTube sort of channel, I suppose. So that's been yeah, good. Uh, I know, because I mean these things just come and go and it could just get lost forever, of course, you would have imagined. But yes. Well, luckily someone's most got your John Peel sessions on on, you know, sort of various sites as well, which has been nice to listen to. So um they're yeah. out there. I guess there's just I guess that the BBC has the master tapes, don't they? You've just got, I mean, I think like Ian was saying, what you just do is get the license for the recordings. I think David's actually got the recordings for the the Peel sessions. So as long as the BBC grant the license, then it can be released okay. as it was. That's fantastic. So, that, well, yeah. let's, yeah, let's hope for um, next year they'll all come out and then you can have one more gig together just to sort of, for the hell of it, it would be good. I would totally do that. I don't. I, mean, I think like some of us would be more excited than others, but I think it's entirely possible. <laughs> it's got. It's got to be done. You know. Let's face it. Everyone's having a little go, and you think, Listen, well, I'm retired. I've got nothing else to do now. I can do what I like. So yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> yes. Well, you you can look at the Northern Lights every night. I think that's just the coolest thing ever. I mean, that is that just must be such a cosmic thing to do or see. It's to, it's it's kind of weird, you know, because I was like brought up in Glasgow, lived in Glasgow my whole life, and now I'm out here and it's pitch black. And then, like when that happens, it's just like this kind of greeny, yellowy, stripy thing. It's it's totally mad and amazing. You get all excited and you start like videoing it and things like that. I remember doing a, I did I did a road trip in October in the 80s to the Isla Lewis to the Callendish Stone Circle and I, I do remember how how dark but also how bright the stars and galaxies are. Yeah, I mean because we're not that far from the mainland, but even yet the stars are really really bright. It's it's amazing. Yeah, you need to, people need to come to the Isle of Butte next time you're in Glasgow. Come to the Isle of Butte. <laughs> Indeed, that is very good advice and um, recommended to uh, take a road trip up north. Anyway, look, that was my conversation interview with Jackie Bradley from several bands, his latest flame and also sophisticated Boom Boom and operated the Hellfire Club in Glasgow in the early 80s. That, dear listener, is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.